It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Well, I have a message called The Great Chase. Isn't that a a fun title? Uh, Just in and of itself, I'm fascinated uh, to see how this is going to unfurl. But this is in a, this is like the third part of a series that I began last week before the Story Summit came into town, and it's on uh, suffering, which I know is, seems like a very wonderful topic to address and to focus on, but for me, one of the reasons I have enjoyed cultivating the ideas of suffering is because once you sort of stare it in the face, and you understand what it is, and you understand what God intends for it, and you understand what God does through it, you don't fear it anymore. It's, it's like demystifying it and not letting the devil define it for our souls because the God goes out of his way to define suffering for us, and he has a smile on his face as he does. So if we were to have God's glasses on when we look at it as opposed to the devil's spin, we actually approach it with a different... Uh, heart condition, a different mindset, and that's going to come out of this particular message, and if any of you have ever heard me teach, like, incorrigibly cheerful, that's a certain mindset or a certain lens that you're going to see sort of buried into the tapestry of this. It's there, but this is a specific idea that is, that comes out of the book of Acts. As you see the church beginning to spread and flourish, what causes it to flourish? (laughs) And if I, if I were just to lay that out there as a, as a beginning question, just ponder that. What caused the church to flourish? What caused the church to spread throughout the world? And, you know, at first you're going to say something like, well, God told them to go. And God told them to spread it throughout the world. And it's like, oh, that's a, that's a fair answer. But God is going to allow certain things to hit the church that are actually going to dramatically impact the spread of the gospel. And those things at first blush aren't good things. And yet the results is a changed world. And so that's where I want us to get into the mindset of of suffering because it really is a wonderful tool in our life. And that's hard to sometimes comprehend because isn't it the devil that is working all this nuisancery? He's the one creating all this havoc. Yes, But did you know that the God that we serve takes all that that enemy would mean to harm us and converts it, turns it, and uses it for our good? And so as a result, we don't fear what the devil has up his sleeve or what he's concocting because whatever he's concocting only creates greater benefit to us. If you don't have trial, well, then you don't have great gains in your life. When you do have trial, you have great gains. So just ponder that for a second. You could have a life without trial and you would be tepid. You would be lackluster. You would be mediocre. Or you could have a life with trials and you could be strong, stout. You could be transformed into one who changes the world. And so I could uh, set that before you and say, well, so which one do you want? And some of us, I mean, genuinely might say, can I have the mediocre life if that's the case? And yet there's another part of you, because that's just the natural man. We all have that. We have this other side of us that says, so uh, how much pain, how much difficulty, what is this gonna cost me? It's like, well, we don't know. 
We don't know what it will cost, but we do know that God's consolation, his grace that he will give is going to be sufficient, which means you will never be without. You will never be abandoned. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be a shield about you. He'll be a very present help in time of trouble. There are certain things we do know. So the great chase, dio, is a primary verb in the Greek, which means to flee, to chase, or to be chased after. So it has a meaning that could be either you're chasing after someone or that you're being chased. The way the Bible is typically going to use it in the New Testament is we have a lot of the disciples, the church, the apostles that are being chased, okay? So this is going to be a word uh, that is going to be used to show that they are fleeing or they are running. Someone is pursuing them. So diako is the verb. It means to run or flee, to press forward, to energetically exert in pursuit of an objective, to drive fiercely towards a goal, to be chased, to be harassed, to be hounded, to be persecuted. So in the book of Acts, you're going to see this word diako, and it is usually going to be associated with persecution. Okay, so they are being persecuted. So they are running. So they are fleeing because they are being uh, chased. And so it's interesting because so much of this word is the essence of Christianity. I mean, right there, it's like baked into one word. Now, when I get to the very end of this message, I'm going to introduce you into a word and it's actually a key role in the church that God assigns that flows out of this very word. And this is the essence. Just think about it. To press forward, energetically exert in pursuit of an objective. Well, there's Christianity right there. We're running after a goal. We're pursuing Christ Jesus, the heavenly call. We are doing this for Christ. And yet we are, at the, the whole while we're chasing after Christ, we're being chased we're being pursued, we're being hounded, we're being persecuted. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They shall suffer diaco. They shall be hounded. It's just a fascinating thing to, to realize what that word persecution is, to be chased after, energetically chased after, hounded. So the word for persecution as a noun is typically going to be diagmos. And I'm going to define that as the great chase. So the persecution, the great persecution breaks out. What's that? That's the great chase. The enemy is working in anyone that he possibly can. If he has a breach in their life, he's going to stir them against the Christians so that they would persecute, so that they would run after, so that they would hound the Christians. That's diagmos. Acts 8, and at that time there was a great diagmos, there was a great persecution against the church which were, was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed committed them to prison. Therefore they were scattered abroad. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now I made that big at the end. I don't know if you can see the difference in the font size. But listen, listen to the conclusion. Therefore, as a result of all that, which is terrible stuff, right? They that were scattered abroad, they that were chased, went everywhere preaching 
the word. Boy, that sure did backfire on the enemy, didn't it? The amazing effects of the chase. Let's look at this. There's a great chase. It leads to a scattering, or what we could say, a positioning. See, when I'm putting salts on my uh, scrambled eggs, it's a, it's a scattering. Or you could look at it a different way. It's a positioning. Very strategic. I don't just dump it all in one corner. I'm going to scatter it abroad, all over the egg. Why? Because I'm positioning that salt in just the right spots so that it's going to be evenly balanced. And so what you see is God comes to Jerusalem, and now it's all in Jerusalem. you got a lot of salt here. you got a salt shaker. And God's like, hmm, <laughs> we need to get that salt all over the world. How are we going to do it? And the devil falls into God's plans, if you want to say it that way. The devil's like, we need to get these guys out of Jerusalem. <laughs> Chases them all over the world. And now we've positioned the salt. We've positioned the Christians. And so that becomes the witness. They're preaching the word everywhere they go. And what does that lead to? The harvest. And so you could say, who's actually in control here? You know, you could understand why people say, well, the devil's just doing God's business. Well, the devil's actually doing the devil's business. But God is very good at playing chess. And no matter what move the devil makes, it falls right into God's plans. And so God is greater than the devil. The devil means evil. He is a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. God is not like that. God is a completely different nature, but God will take what the enemy means to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and he will convert it into a powerful demonstration of his love, power, and grace. So here's that same scripture. And at that time, there was a great persecution. So we're like, no, that's such a terrible word. We, we, none of us have a positive thought about the word persecution. So there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And even that, I mean, we're thinking of families being disbanded and you know, everyone moving to different places. This is a sad time. This is hard. I mean, I can't believe we're walking through this. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They don't seem too downcast over this. It's like, hey, look where I ended up. They need Jesus here. In other words, God is strategically positioning his saints exactly where he wants them. Yet, he's positioning them there as a result of the enemy chasing them. That is just amazing. It is an incredible picture. I and mean, there it is all throughout the book of Acts showing that what the enemy means for evil, God, is, God means for good. That there's weapons that are fashioned against the church, but they cannot actually work. They will not stand. So the principle that we're dealing with, the enemy chases and God leverages the chase to accomplish his ends. The enemy chases, God's people run and providentially scatter into position and then become unstoppable and undeniable messengers of truth in their strategic God-assigned positions. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. And that's supposed to say martyrs, not matis. <laughs> martyrs, witnesses as martyrs, to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're not just going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. It's sort of like us, you know, God moving upon us and saying, I want you to be a witness in Windsor. It's like, okay, because yeah, that's where we're at. That makes sense. But instead he says, I want you to do it in Windsor, but I also want you to go to the ends of the earth. Well, we're not that big of a group. So how's that going to happen? Well, you'll see. 
You see, it's hard. It's like studying the Bible sometimes. Like, it's a big book. You know, so how do I study it? Where do I start? And God leads us in that. He knows where we're supposed to invest ourselves, whether it's in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the earth. Where, God, where do you want me digging today? Where do you want me sharing this gospel? He's very good at leading us. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. Now, I'm giving this to you because you've probably seen this scripture before, but remember, we're talking about a great chase here. So this is a fascinating statement in light of that. So I do not run aimlessly with uncertainty. I do not box as one beating the air. So fascinating statement. Of course, he's talking about an athletic event here. You know, an Olympic understanding would be the context, but just picture what we're talking about here. We have a whole bunch of Olympic runners known as the Church of Jesus Christ, and they got fire on their heels. You know, something's chasing them, and they're not running as you would suppose, aimlessly, as if it's with uncertainty. No, they're confident that God is positioning them. So even though they are having to leave one place and go to another, they aren't without hope. They are not running aimlessly with uncertainty, though they are running. It's true they are being chased, but it is not a chase with uncertainty. It is not an aimless chase. In other words, when we go through trials and tribulations, sometimes it feels very aimless. Very meaningless. It's like, why am I going through this? You need to have the same confidence that Paul does. You see, I'm not going through this difficulty. I'm not running uh, from this difficulty behind me aimlessly without, uh, uh, with uncertainty. No, I have certainty that my God is good, that he is faithful, that he is true, and he turns all of such circumstances into an incredible picture of his love, mercy, and grace. So the key idea, when the chase comes, I don't just run with uncertainty, not realizing that this chase has purpose and meaning. I know that God is allowing this chase to direct me perfectly into position, into the position that my witness may have full effect for his kingdom and his glory. He is positioning your witness. He knows where you must be, and your circumstances, though you would not have cho cho chosen them, are actually directing you into the perfect situations. I don't know if you've ever had that type of a statement. It's like, if I'd left the house one minute earlier, I would have been in that accident. You know, one of those ty types of situations. To recognize that there actually is a God. And that God actually cares about the micro-movements of your life. And even though you don't understand why that movement would have been, why you got a flat tire, and you're like, why'd I get a flat tire? Well... It's very strategic. It's part of something that we usually complain about the difficulties instead of rejoicing and laughing at them, going, ha, God, this is part of your story, isn't it? If you took every flat tire and immediately converted it into a grand story, Aaron Burns and I spent the day together yesterday, and many of you may have met him over the weekend, but he's a film producer. And we were talking about a specific story. And it was interesting because we were saying in life, we don't want conflict. But if a movie that you're watching doesn't have conflict, you turn it off. You want a movie with conflict. You want someone else's life to have conflict. <laughs> but you don't want conflict. Yet every good thing that comes out of that movie is in overcoming the conflict. Why is it that we can ascertain that fact by staring at a, a, a movie screen, but we can't ascertain that fact when looking at our own life? Did you want a dull life? Is that what you're after? And some of us are like, yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
When in actuality, this key idea is that when the chase comes, I don't just run with uncertainty, not realizing that this chase has purpose and meaning. I know that God is allowing this chase to direct me perfectly into position, that my witness may have full effect for his kingdom and his glory. Imagine if you actually lived with that thought. Then every difficulty you ever went through would lead to a smile on your face. Just like when, when you're watching that one movie, that storyline that's unfolding, and that one thing happens, uh, you know, that my, my kids will yell out, foreshadow! Because you know the fact that he left his watch sitting on the, you know, the bedside table and the camera zooms in on us. I say, oh, well, pfft. Yeah, they're zooming in on that. That means uh, he's going to need that watch. So you just, you already know it. You can see it. We don't oftentimes see it. We just realize, oh, forgot my watch. And then we have this panic moment instead of like foreshadow. My dad, when we were uh, growing up, if, if a, this is in football. Sorry to give you a football illustration. But if, our, if the Broncos kicker misses the extra point, my dad would always say, well, that'll come back to haunt him. And I, I didn't like it when he would say that. It's like, don't say that. We're going to blow him out. But sure enough, that one point would play into the end of the game. It would always be so stressful. It's like that one point. If we just had that one point. And so in story, there is that one point. There are these situations that lead to a grand drama, a grand dependence on God, which leads to a grand story. Chasing Paul. So the persecution of Paul. Paul was a chaste man. There is just, and that sounded funny. That sounded like chaste, like he was uh, C-H-A-S-T-E. He was a man who was, no, that still sounds like it. Uh, he was pursued. He was run after. How about that? Philippians 1, 12 through 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So uh, what, what happened to him? From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. I'm glad you asked, guys, uh, what happened to me, because I'll tell you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils in the false, among false brethren, in the weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Woo! I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so if you ask the question, what happened to him, he's giving you the answer right here. All of that turned into the furtherance of the gospel? You're catching the drift of this? I mean, this is it's like the book of Acts unveils this fact. Paul then, in his letters, confirms it, just in case you didn't catch it. What were the effects of this chase? So a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, is known to have said in Scripture, listen to this. So this is Demetrius talking. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Demetrius sees it. This Paul has gone throughout almost all of Asia and converted them. This guy's a menace. Yeah, guess what? He was chased all over Asia. It depends on how you look at it. God was leading him, yes. But this man would be chased out of towns. He was evicted almost out of every town he was in. The marks of true discipleship. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall. Now I'm taking the word persecuted and I'm giving us an amplified version of it here. 
Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall be vigorously chased, pursued with evil venom, and harassed with earthly sufferings. Yeah, yep. Some of us don't quite know what to do with that scripture. And it's not the normal scripture for you to stick on a nice placard and stick up on your refrigerator. And yet, it depends on how you look at it. If you have the right lens on this, you know, you could be looking at that and saying, God intends you to be a hero, so expect hero challenges. You know, it's just that's sort of the same thing, isn't it? You see, we are being built into a picture of his grace and glory. Well, how did you expect to become that? In and through the same method that the great men and women of history past have been shaped and formed. They're part of a grand drama. They're put in a crucible. They're put in a refiner's fire. And as a result, something better, stronger, comes out. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The Greek word is stigma. And so if you've ever heard the term stigmata, that is the marks of the Christ. And so Paul is saying, look, in my body I'm literally bearing the marks. I have suffered for him. And some people would even say, I don't know if you guys remember my message on uh, the smashed head where I talk about Paul's potentially smashed head. Because, I mean, it wasn't just potential, it was. But whether or not, I don't know what it looked like, but some people have said that was what uh, was likely, whether or not we know this, uh, his thorn in the flesh, is that he had a smashed head, which was an obvious, he was like on display everywhere he went and everyone knew he was stoned. So he must be a bad guy. I mean, could you imagine having to enter into every conversation with that as your marker? It's like if it's a hand, you can sort of cover it up, but if it's your head, it's just sort of there. Uh, and that, what an, could you imagine why he would say, God, could you take this away from me? Could you, I know you're a heel. Could you take this away? So we don't know, but we do know this. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So uh, my last session in this little mini-series that we've been going through on suffering is introducing the fellowship of the burning heart. Well, it was called the fellowship of the burning heart. So I'm just saying introducing the fellowship of the burning heart. I'm gonna call them the mark bearers. They're the ones that bear the mark of Jesus. In other words, they have been chased. They show signs of the chase in their life. And that's not just physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. If you talk with any of us that have been around the block in Christianity, just get us talking and say, have you ever gone through any difficulties? Oh yeah. You see, this is the chase. And the moment you stick your head, it's sort of like asking a soldier in World War I if he ever had a bullet shot at him. Uh, you know, the fact that he's still alive just means he obviously survived it, right? But, oh yeah, you know, you can't be in war and not have uh, shrapnel fly near you or hit you and not have gunpowder in your eyes, you know, whatever it would be. <coughs> the mark bearers. How will you recognize those of the burning heart? So I'm going to give 30 defining attributes of those who bear the marks. This is cool. Number one, they are those who are armed with the same mind as Christ was armed, prepared to suffer in the body. That's 1 Peter 4.1. Number two, they are those who do not consider it strange to encounter fiery trials. 1 Peter 4.12. They are those who rejoice for the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13. They are those who are unashamed of the fact that they suffer for righteousness. 1 Peter 4.16. They are those who consider it the highest privilege to fill up in their bodies what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Colossians 1.24. 
Number six, they are those who are immovable and undaunted in affliction, for they know that they are commissioned, even appointed to suffering, affliction, and tribulation. That's 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, and then 4 and 12. Number seven, they are those who are troubled on every side, yet do not get distressed. Those who are perplexed, but do not despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. Number eight, they are those who are always bearing about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in their body. That's 2 Corinthians 4.10. Now let's stop there. I'm saying there are 30 of these. Some of us are already a little overwhelmed that there's this much in the New Testament on that already. We've just gone through eight. The New Testament is a teaching on suffering, how to live in this body well for the Lord Jesus Christ, how to bear his image. I mean, that's what it's about. We're eight into 30, okay? This is a massive thing. You know, to establish witness in a court of law, two to three witnesses, we have such depth of confirmation in the New Testament of how we are to appropriate suffering, how we are to view suffering. It's funny because you'd think the North American church would get it with that much evidence. And yet we repel this idea because... There are certain teachings that are far more ear-tingling. We do not want to hear about difficulties. And as a result, because of that simple fact, we do not receive the benefit of them. So number nine, they are those who yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and desire to be conformed to his death. Philippians 3.10. Number 10, they are those who are not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, but are partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.8. Number 11, they are those who know that all things, whether it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, or any other affliction, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. Number 12, they are those who accept with joy the fact that for Christ's sake they are killed all the day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter, Romans 8, 35 and 36. Number 13, they are those who know that all afflictions and all trials shall turn to their salvation through prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 19. And number 14, they are those who are utterly confident that they shall not be ashamed for the confidence they have placed in Jesus Christ. And whether it's by life or by death, Christ shall be magnified in their body. Philippians 1.20. Number 15. They are those who know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Philippians 1.21. We are halfway through the list, guys. Isn't that amazing? I'm not saying this 30 is all there is in the New Testament because there's a whole bunch of demonstrations of this too. In other words, you have the demonstrative demo, uh, elements of Scripture, like the book of Acts is showing. It's not necessarily giving doctrine. It's demonstrating how these men lived. And this is actually the teaching, the instruction that Paul is going to give out of his life to say, you need to follow too. I mean, Peter is a specialist in this. Number 16, they are those who are gladly spent for the glory of God and faint not through the difficult trials, imprisonments, and the many afflictions. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 15 through 16. Number 17, they are those who are confident that as suffering and affliction tears down and decomposes their outward body, their inward man is renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Number 18, they are those who know that their current afflictions work for them a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, that's 2 Corinthians 4, 17. 
Number 19, they are those who know that if their earthly house, their body were dissolved, they have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Number 20, there are those who will gladly spend their bodies and spill their blood because of love for Jesus Christ and for his body, the church. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. 21, they are those who rejoice and are exceeding glad when they are reviled, persecuted, and, fall, and all manner of evil is spoken against them falsely for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew 5, 11 through 12. And number 22, they are those who rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 5, 41. Number 23, they are those who are exceeding joyful in all their tribulation. 2 Corinthians 7, 4. 24, they are those who consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds. James 1, 2. 25, they are those who know that where the sufferings of Christ abound, so the consolation, comfort, and satisfaction of Christ abounds. 2 Corinthians 1, 5. Number 26, they are those whose hope is steadfast and whose endurance is strong, though they be pressed out of measure above their human strength to handle insomuch that they despair even of life. 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 8. Number 27, they are those whose boast is in their Christ, his sufferings, and the fact that they are privileged to share in the fellowship of those sufferings, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, with scourging, stoning, stripes, beatings, shipwrecks, perils, weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, and nakedness. That's 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 27. And number 28, <clears throat> they are those who endure all things for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the elect. 2 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. And number 29, there are those who do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in them. Romans 8, 18. And finally, number 30, there are those who know it was fitting for Jesus to become perfect through suffering. And it is also, listen, fitting for them to be perfected in the same manner. Hebrews 2, 10. Whoo! Wowzer! The pattern of the burning heart. 23 of the 30 above descriptions were given by, the Paul, by Paul the Apostle. Now, the reason I'm saying that isn't to try and make a theological statement, but I want to make a follow-up by showing you what he says then. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Okay, we just got a whole bunch of those, by the way, guys. These do. And the God of peace will be with you. So we're like, God, I really want peace. I really want peace in my life. And Paul says, oh, you want peace? I'll, I'll tell you how the God of peace can be with you. You know all those things you saw, which you learned and received and heard and saw in me? Do those. How would that bring peace? You were chased. You were you know, run all over. You were fleeing constantly. You were persecuted. You suffered greatly in your body, Paul. You want the God of peace to be with you? Follow me. He says, therefore I urge you, imitate me. In Philippians 3, 17, he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul is a pattern for us. He's not just an exceptional Christian. I'm not saying he wasn't an exceptional Christian, but he's not just an exceptional Christian. He's a pattern of the Christian life. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, if you've ever heard me talk about imitation or Nathan Johnson talk about imitation, we're going to say the secret to imitation is impartation. In other words, you can't imitate 
the Christian life. You must receive the life of Christ and let him live out or imitate himself in and through you. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So it's a weird thought to think of Jesus being perfected, because he's Jesus, right? But it is interesting to realize <coughs> what it says here, that it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So Christ has suffered on our behalf. We know that. We're like, well, praise God, praise God. Then Paul says that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul's like, I want in on that. I want in on that perfecting work. I want in on that labor of grace on that labor of the Holy Spirit that worked out in Christ. I want in on that. I want to be a part of that fellowship. Do we? You see, we can esteem Paul. Of course, we can esteem Christ. But we can esteem Paul's example. And we can hear that it's a pattern. We can go, well, praise God. But we also have what would be, I'm going to call it a North American mindset, even though I'm sure I could drag a few of the, uh, the Europeans in on it that we have a tendency to find escape clauses. It's like, well, God doesn't actually expect me to do this. I mean, he doesn't expect me to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all things. And then the next line says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I think it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. In other words, don't look for a loophole. Go after the grace to be able to see it formed inside of you. You dig in your own pockets, you're not gonna find it. We've gone over that so many times. It's not going to be in your natural man possession. It is in Christ, but it is there. You will fall short, so will I, in this grand chase. But the one who desires to live inside of us will not fall short. First Peter 4, 1, this is amazing, guys. So we know that Christ suffered, and we know that Paul wanted in on it, but here in 1 Peter 4, we see a message that might as well have been directly written to us, even though it's written to the early church by Peter. 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There is something about this suffering, this difficulty, that actually works a great benefit to the soul. It sanctifies. It produces something in us that cannot be produced any other way. What do you want to grow up to be? You know, that's an interesting statement. There's a, a role in the body of Christ that, if you study the, the positions of church government, uh, there's a lot of terms in there like bishop that we don't use oftentimes in, in some of the circles that we've been a part of, even though it's a biblical word. Uh, and elder, you've, you've heard that uh, word. Uh, pastor, you know, these are, these are words which basically just mean shepherd. But there is a word 
for a position of service in the body of Christ. And that's actually what it is. It's, it's a servant in the body of Christ, and it's a position. And it's a high position. In other words, you have to pass the sniff test of Timothy and Titus, you know, those, those books, to be able to even be this in the church. It's, a, it's something to be esteemed in the body of Christ. And remember I talked about uh, diogma and diokos in the beginning, and I said this very word of being chased, of being persecuted, is actually the root of one of the key job descriptions in the church. Like, what do you want to grow up to be? Well, I want to work for Jesus, all right? And you're going to want to be a diakonos, which translates a deacon. Isn't that amazing that this word is actually, its root is the very essence of persecution. It's to pursue hard after something as Paul did, the heaven, heavenly call, the prize, and yet it's also to be pursued. We know what we're signing up for, guys. We esteem the diokonos position. We recognize that to be a servant in this body is, I mean, such an extreme privilege. So the diokonos, the deacons, we can call them the persecuted. Isn't that an interesting term? It's like, yeah, I'd like to be one of those. It's all you have to live a noble life. I mean, you have to make sure you pass the sniff test here. And so a young kid is growing up. It's like, oh, if only I could be the persecuted. <laughs> if only I could grow up to have such a privilege of serving Christ. Isn't that interesting? This is how the church has always been. So the deacons, the persecuted, the errand runners. These guys are the ones that serve. They literally run the errands. They wait on tables. They run to serve. If there's a privileged opportunity to serve, they run to it. They sprint the ones that risk their lives to carry the message, the chaste, those that find supreme delight in the grand adventure of being chaste. I like that. That's a, that's a great statement. There's a, a finishing touch, and I don't, it seems like I may, may have mentioned this in the five-week classic uh, training, so some of you may have heard this, but it's worth repeating, especially for the advanced students that showed up. <coughs> there is it's the movie Polycarp that was made a few years ago. And so the, the writers of that sort of took some creative liberties and merged Polycarp and uh, Germanicus together, okay? Whether or not, I mean, they lived in the same time period, but whether or not they were, like, living in the same house, we don't know, right? And so it's a fascinating thing where Polycarp is the, sort of the older father figure, and Germanicus is a younger guy. And he sort of has an initial mistake or he fails in standing for Christ boldly. And so, but this is the time period where Christians are being fed to wild beasts. And so it's a pretty deep thing. As a Christian, you want to be able to stand, but you don't feel like you have the stuff to do it. And so he goes through a failure in the flow of the storyline of the movie in his character arc. And then, you know, Polycarp has the exhortation to him and you see the change sort of the transformation of this young man into the bold lion. And finally, he is actually brought to a point where he has to make a decision. He chooses Christ, but he's going to be fed to wild beasts. But he's ready. And if, if you saw it, you, you'd, you'd remember the scene. It's great. I mean, it's actually really stirring. Uh, and, you know, we're not talking about a big-budget film, but that, that scene is, is deeply stirring. So Germanicus enters the arena, smiles when he hears the roar of the wild beasts and then sprints towards them. I mean, that, that's good. He sprints towards the wild beasts. Yeah, kind of like this. 
this is, that's us. It's Germanicus. We're pulling a Germanicus, not just in the arena, but in life. It's like, well, if I went in that direction, I mean, I could be eaten alive. Yeah, that's right. But pull a Germanicus. Be it Diokonos. Run after it. Go into it. David sprinted towards Goliath. Who in the right mind would sprint towards the greatest champion in the world at that time that we know of, right? He's 12 and a half feet tall. I'm measuring by the long cubit, not the short squatty cubit. Why anyone chooses to make him nine feet tall? Because no one knows. I don't know why they would choose the short cubit. So he's 12 and a half feet tall in Eric's imagination. And David is going to sprint. That's actually the Hebrew word mahar. Sprints. He doesn't have armor on. What are you doing, David? He sprints. He's a diokonos. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He knows that's going down. He knows that greater is he that is in him than he that is against him. He knows. Do you know? You see, the diokonos smile more than anyone else. You can say, but they're persecuted. They're being chased. Yeah, but they find supreme delight in the grand adventure of being chased. They have a smile on their face. They are the most joy-filled, happy people on planet Earth. What I want you to start catching is I want you to say, I want in on that. Now, in your natural man, you're repulsed by it. I get that, okay? I, I understand completely. I've spent years of my life attempting to think like an early Christian. And there is nothing in our culture that helps me along. Everything in my culture says, think about you, Eric. Think about self-preservation. Think about your protection. Think about your safety. Everything in this culture tells me that. Everything in the Bible says, think about the glory of God. It does not throw wisdom to the wind. In other words, if it's a cold day, I'm going to wear a coat. In other words, I'm not stupid, but I'm willing to be deemed the fool that I will do things that would put me in a greater danger. Socially, as any culture begins to decline, it becomes increasingly more and more incorrect to speak the gospel. This is the case in every culture, okay? In our culture, what you see is we've crossed a line where it is now evil. It's becoming evil to share truth. Isn't that interesting? It's becoming wrong to share truth. And so as a result, it takes boldness. It's not just, you know, duty. It's boldness because duty will fail you when it becomes socially incorrect and when it could lead to your death. You cannot be moved simply by duty and right, you must be moved by love and by the Holy Spirit, and you must have courage and boldness that comes from above. You must have a supreme delight in the grand adventure of it. There needs to be a smile in your soul and not a dread. You are on the winning side. Do not fear what the enemy will do to you. We fear one, and that's God. We have zero fear in this world. Okay, that, that's just what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying that that's our personal experience, but remember we have fact, faith, and experience. Let's, let's, let's turn to the truth and follow it instead of heeding. It's like, well, but I'm a coward. Yes, I, I get that. That's your experience, and that is true about your natural man. God would even attest to that. However, who is he? Is he a coward? No. And where do you live? What's your position? Well, I'm in Christ. And what do you have access to in Christ? Well, everything I need for life and godliness? That's right. So what were you saying again about you being a coward? Well, my first man is a coward, but my new life in Christ is fearless. And it's not just the power of positive thinking, guys. It's faith in his word. 
you're not just trying to believe that you have a Ferrari parked outside, and if you just think hard enough, it will materialize. That's a bunch of bunk. We're talking about God's word spoken to us, and we believe it. I have no reason to fear because God is my refuge, my strength, and a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear what man can do to me. In other words, you reason with the word. And if you take the New Testament in regards to suffering, you begin to reason with it. You become happy. That's all I can say. If you recognize that no matter what difficulty comes your way, that the consolation that you get from God to handle that difficulty is greater than the difficulty coming against you. That's like if I told you that, yeah, there's a thief on campus, and if he does rob you, I will repay what you got robbed four times over. What are you going to do? You're going to have the bills hanging out of your pocket. You're going to be walking. You'll set it down and like, put your name on it. Uh, and it's like, don't take this. <laughs> and, uh, do you follow me? You would not be fearful of being robbed because you know that what you get in being robbed is greater than if you were robbed. That is a weird thing, but that's actually how the New Testament explains it. It's like it's a greater investment to be persecuted, to be harmed, to lose things in this life. To pick up a cross and follow is somehow greater than if you didn't pick up the cross. Wait a minute. But if I don't pick up the cross, I don't have splinters in my shoulder, I don't have people mocking me, reviling me, and I don't die. And how is it better that I pick up a cross and have splinters in my shoulder, people mocking and reviling me, spitting upon me? Maybe they you know, get another crown of thorns sticking on my head too. I mean, I don't want that. God, I don't want that. How could that be better? Don't you realize what you're getting? You're heading towards something when you do that. You see, when you are chased, you are headed into the might and the power and the intimacy of God. There is no lack for those that trust their God. Though in the natural realm, and according to your natural man, this seems like a bad situation, you must think with heavenly wisdom. You must apply the word of God to your situation, and what happens? You giggle as you see the, the, the spreadsheet, you know, as you see your little accounting balance. You're like, lost everything, stolen, bereft of everything I love, and uh, wait a minute, great gain. It's like lost life to die is gain. What? How did that work? Somehow God converts this seeming negative into a greater gain. It means it's great advantage. So if you lose your life, oh boy, how did you get so blessed? And we're like, wait a minute, I'm losing my life. You got to lose your life? Oh, wow, I wish I could lose my life for Christ. You know that they had a problem in the early church? It's the exact opposite problem we have today. People were sponsoring their own martyrdom. It's like sticking the bills out of their pocket and like, uh, hey, could you steal from me? They were actually doing this. This is the problem. The church and the, the early church had to issue an edict to say God actually delights in you living your life too. Not just in your death, but he wants you to live out the life that he has given you. Don't just come up to a Roman soldier, poke him and say, I'm a Christian, and then run. <laughs> However, the church knew what we're talking about. They understood the investment. They understood that it was greater gain. Paul was, you know, this is what the early church was learning. You see Paul beginning to discover at the, first, at the beginning of the church in Acts, they're really struggling with, with this suffering thing, just like we would. 
But then there is a conversion in their thinking. And Paul is one of the lead instruments. And then you see Peter writing an entire book on it, saying, guys, you need to recognize what this is. We have been given something so great, an opportunity, so grand. This life is but a vapor. We live forever with him. Let's spend it well. Don't you get excited about this? And so the word persecution becomes a positive word to you. Someone says it, and you're like, oh, I might name my child persecuted. Persecuted Ludi. Yeah, you know what? It has a, has a ring to it. Or diokonos. You could call him like diok for short or something like that. Diok Ludi. Uh, just trying it out, you know. I'm not necessarily planning on having a whole bunch of more kids here, but, uh, you know, just in case, there's some good options that I'm giving you guys. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you so much for your way of doing things. Lord, we don't want to argue with it. We don't want to take our natural man and try and fix it. We want to humble ourselves and say, you are all wisdom and understanding. You are all truth. Lord, we desire to submit to you and believe you today that your ways are best, that to pick up a cross actually leads to life, that to be robbed from leads to greater gain, that to be falsely accused is, reasons, is a reason to leap for joy. Father, here we are, your servants, and we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today to live this out, not to just esteem it in our minds, but to live it. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.